Welcome to our studies. This is lesson number, let me see if I've got it right, lesson number 12. And lesson number 12 takes us to the book of Exodus. So it's, we've been going at it for 12 lessons and we're just two books in. And truth be told, there's so much more information that we could have disseminated. But we're moving fine. I think we're moving just, just great. There's something I want to show you before we go into our lesson tonight. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to exergete the book of Exodus we're going to lead it out. We're going to use the principle in John 1.18. The only begotten son, he has declared God. We're going to declare what the book means. And this is very important. We're going to see what it meant to the first audience. Remember I told you this. Please hear me on this one. Do not try to understand the Bible before understanding what it meant to the original reader. That's a very critical thing. Because remember we taught this, the word of God comes to us indirectly over time. It came to them directly in a moment. So in the mind of God and in the author, he had an immediate audience. That Israelite that was now in the place of promise needed to hear these words to build a worldview in the place of promise. As the word of God goes forward, Jesus is fully manifested in the meaning of the book of Exodus. So we're going to see him tonight in types. We're going to see him in shadows. And ultimately, the word of God comes to us today in a contemporary sense. From the historical, it becomes for us today the rhema of God so we can live our lives in accordance. And what we will see from God, remember this principle, there is nothing new under the sun. And what God has been saying to those people there. He's saying the same thing to us at a different point in time and perhaps at a higher level of revelatory light. But what I want to do first is I want to show you a short video. I thought it was, I find it fascinating. I hope you'll enjoy it. But remember when we were in the book of Genesis, we talked about the idea that the serpent possibly had speech. And there's a possibility that the ability to speak was not just relegated to the, can I say, the human world, but it also went to the animal kingdom. And we taught that based on the fact that it seems as if using symmetry, the animal kingdom was created by God to serve humanity in the same way that the angelic kingdom serves God. And you remember we saw this as we looked at different ways in which we've domesticated animals and we're still using animals and the ways even in which we love animals. So beginning with dogs and cats, going all the way to cows and oxen, you can see that there's a relationship between humanity and the animal kingdom. And we, we, we also even entertain ourselves. If you go to places like, how many of you have been to Marineland or SeaWorld in San Diego? And you see us, what are we doing? We're talking to the dolphins and we're riding the whales and all those kind of things. We even use them to entertain us. And we're developing ways of communicating with them so that we can understand what they're thinking, what they're feeling. I want to show you a short clip. There's a lady. She has a warbler. And she's demonstrating that this bird can actually imitate and speak back to her what she's saying. Watch this. Bird. Who's my precious candy bird? 
Isn't that something? Amazing. If you actually follow those links, you'll actually see a whole world of people doing that. You'll, you'll actually see that there's a bird in Australia that any sound in that particular region, that bird as a defense mechanism can imitate that sound. So they actually demonstrated the bird and there was someone with a chainsaw, the bird did the same sound. There was someone with a cell phone, the bird did the same sound and used that as a defense mechanism, as a way of warding off potential danger. There's far more to the animal kingdom than I think we, we, we know and understand. But because we're in a fallen world, we don't see the full glory of what God intended for, for creation. But here's what we'll do. Let's go to uh, the book of Exodus tonight. What we're going to do, again, exegeting the, the text, three things we do. Number one, we need to know the historical meaning. So we always start with the historical meaning. Anytime you go to the Bible, and you can do this. Do you know why we struggle today trying to figure out what Paul meant about women teaching and hats and covering? It's because we don't understand what? The historical meaning. What was going on when he wrote that? What was in his mind to the church at Corinth? So then we can then begin to work backwards or forwards rather and do application. So historical always means what did it mean then? Thousands of years ago. Now this, watch, for charismatic people, this is boring. But it's the boring stuff that gives you the greatest revelation. I promise you that. If you can weave through what is tedious, do the work of learning the text, once you get to the charisma, it just begins to open up for you. Then has a meaning. And them, there was an audience so let's ask the question. The writer we know of the book of Exodus, we know it to be Moses. And we're going to use Luke chapter 24 to prove that. So Moses, the same one that's leading them out of promise, is the one writing this to them. Please understand this. The people that we're going to talk about tonight in the book of Exodus, Moses is not writing it to them. Got that? They're actually living out what Moses is going to write. Ultimately, these scrolls are going to be for the people who end up where? In the promise. So the purpose of writing is to teach people now, when you get to the promise, here's what you should know. And here's what you should learn from. So some of those mistakes we made in the wilderness, we don't want to go into Canaan and repeat those same mistakes. Canaan is too valuable for us to repeat the same mistakes of the journey. All right? Number two, this is the audience, Israelites. So he's writing to, and I would even say this, the second generation, not the first one they came out of Egypt, the second generation that will cross over. Who will take them over? Shout it at me. Joshua will take them over. Now they're in the promised land. He writes it to them. Israelites in the promise. Does that make sense? Okay, very good. Let's go one step further. Seven lessons that I think we can glean. Number one, here's what he wants to remind them. Number one, Egypt is not our home. He makes that clear. Do you see that? In other words, the God that we serve is a God of promise. And he has a promise possession for us. Now notice, the danger is going to be, the danger is that most people when they go to this, going to say, no, earth is not our home. Heaven is our home. This is not what Moses is teaching us. He's teaching us that in the earth, God has a specific place for his people. And he's promised them that, that particular place. 
And for them, it's going to be the land of Canaan. Okay? They did not call it Palestine. Palestine is actually a Romanish uh, way of looking at it. When the Romans came in and they wanted to conquer it, they named it after the former inhabitants, the Philistines. And today, to some degree, there's areas where they refer to it as, as Palestine. All right? Egypt is not our home. Right away, you can start thinking, does that mean that God also has a place for me in the earth? We can get to there when we get to the contemporary understanding. The second lesson that we need to... Sorry, I went the wrong way. My apologies. Let me go forward. Lesson number two. This is critical. Yahweh, if you don't want to use the word Yahweh, you can use the Lord or you can use Adonai, is our deliverer. So he has a place for us. We're in Egypt right now. So he's going to take the initiative to do what? Take us out of that which we're not supposed to be in and bring us to where we should be. So he becomes to us a deliverer. The Israelite then begins to think, anytime I'm in trouble, who should I look to for deliverance? The Lord then becomes the one that fights our battles. So Yahweh is our deliverer. He's the one that's going to come and deliver us. And he uses references like his saving hand or his right arm. Lesson number three, which continues from the idea of deliverance. What he does in Egypt, he fights for us. So Yahweh fights for us. What would we say today in the church? The battle is not, but it is. Yahweh fights for us. So he's the one through the plagues, through the miracles that dismantles the nation of Egypt. Okay, please understand this. If Yahweh can bring down Egypt, the world power, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Did you, do you really believe that? Because sometimes when people look at this world and all the systems of the world and the governing systems and the power, we say, oh, we're really insignificant. And we become, a lesson to be learned, grasshoppers in our because we don't understand that anything that we're trying to do on behalf of God, he goes before us and he's the one that fights the battles. We have to learn the strategy of allowing him to fight the battle. Or knowing, watch, what our place is in the battle. So that we're not fighting wars that we really can't win unless he intervenes. So Yahweh is the one. He sends plagues on Egypt. He turns the rivers into blood. He causes darkness. He kills the firstborn so that he can deliver us. So get this. You see what great extent Yahweh goes to to get his people out of bondage. So he goes to a great extent to deliver his people. So then if we can believe this, it shouldn't be hard to believe that if we're not able, Yahweh himself will come and deliver us. See the New Testament coming now? What we're not able to do, the word then becomes flesh and does the job for us. Lesson number four. This is what I like. Once Yahweh brings us out, because we do not know this when we're in Egypt. He does not tell us this until Exodus 19. And in Exodus 19, we're out of Egypt. He then tells us that we are his peculiar people. So now that he's brought us out, he's actually, watch, he's identifying us so that we will know who we are on the journey to promise. 
Do you think that's important? That we know who we are on the journey into what God has promised for us? Because there's several reasons. Number one, along the way, all the other nations might try to tell us that who we're not. When we get into Canaan, there's a temptation also to emulate nations who are not Yahweh's peculiar people, not until they come into the understanding of his covenant. So he tells us, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a peculiar nation in the earth. And right there, because you and I are great scholars, 1 Peter chapter 2 jumps up, right? Verse number 9, and ye are a royal priesthood, chosen generation, a peculiar people. All right? Here, I think Yahweh is trying to remind them that you are different from the nations in the place where you're going. So if you understand that properly, your job is not to emulate them. Your job is to so be who you are that they would want to emulate you. Are we doing good in the body of Christ in the 21st century? I think we're doing terrible. I, that's just my assessment. I think the church is prone to emulating the world more than the world is sitting around thinking, how can we be like them? And it's just something that needs to be fixed. It's not an indictment or an insult. It's just something that needs to be fixed because the darkness can't be sitting there thinking, we're better than the light. The light should be saying, come on out of darkness and walk in this marvelous light. Lesson number five, Yahweh has, I'm going to choose a word. I'm not going to say commandments, I'm not going to say laws, I'm not going to say ordinances or statutes. I'm going to say Yahweh has principles because he's a principled God. So watch this, brothers and sisters. On the journey to promise, those who are going to get in are principle-centered. Does that make sense? So we, though we're working at it, should be principled people. Fair? So I didn't even say about thou shall not, thou shall not. I'm really telling you that Yahweh, by saying all of these hard things, he's really saying to you, I'm a principled God. I'm a God that lives by principles. I expect my children to operate by principles. If we struggle, Yahweh is going to institute a system whereby when we fail, we can bring a sacrifice so that we don't have excuses for not being principled. Agreed? Okay. All right. Exodus 24. Lesson number six. Yahweh dwells with us, and he dwells with us on the journey and into the place of promise. So he lives with us. That's what he says. Moses, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. But before he says that in 24, go back to 19. Do not let them come and touch the mountain. So though he is imminent with us, we should always remember that he's also transcendent above us. Lest by being close to us, we become too familiar with him and disrespect him or treat him in a way that's irreverent. So ways that we could do that is, I, I always say this to people, come into his house with an attitude. 
That is actually us becoming too familiar with his imminence. The way to come into his house is to come in humility. You see what I'm saying? It's the same thing. We can live our lives in such a way that because he is with us, and in fact the Bible teaches that he is in us, that we become so used to him that sometimes we do things that displease him and it doesn't even register to us. So he does 24 after chapter 19. He is imminent. Do not touch the mountain and only Moses can come up here. Do not let even the animals touch the mountain. I am a transcendent God. In other words, watch. I'm a God to be feared. Do you agree with that? Can I tell you what's lost in the body of Christ that we need to recover from pulpits to pews? The fear of God. From pulpits to pews where people are afraid of God and it governs then conduct and behavior. And because we're living in time of multiplied grace, you don't see people falling down. Then we perpetuate certain things myself, you, and we find ourselves being guilty of Yahweh dwelling with us. So he dwells with us, and not just on the journey, because we're going to take David, we're going to take the tabernacle into the place of promise. He's going to be with us. In other words, from this moment on, Yahweh says, Lo, I'm with you always. He dwells with us. So they've got that confidence. Number seven, which is the last one. We also see that this God that dwells with us, he relates to us through people. So he's going to institute now a priesthood. He's going to have Aaron, his sons, and he's going to mediate himself to us through people. And we find out that not only is he a God of principle, he dwells with us, but he works through people to communicate himself to us. And he brings forth the priesthood. And someone's going to, on behalf of God, take our sacrifices, teach us about God, pray for us when the time is necessary because he comes through people. He's a mediatorial God. Okay? What you see here is Psalm 133, that he places things on people, he expects those things to cascade onto other people, and that's how he works. All right? One of the things I think is important here is if he works through people, Anytime there are people that he's working through, our job to our betterment is to keep those people alive. Agreed? So in the Old Testament, it's important that we keep Aaron alive. And it's important that we keep Eleazar and those boys because those are the people that God is flowing through. Later on, God will warn them, be careful about these people. And he'll say things like, touch not my anointed do my prophets no harm because of his desire to relate to us through them. So those are seven lessons that they get. And I think they would grasp those lessons in the place of promise and begin to live their lives in, in accordance with the teachings of the book of Exodus. If we go one step further, let's look at the Christological understanding of the book of Exodus. And you're going to see beautiful images now of Jesus in the book of Exodus. In fact, they're so evident that it's, it's almost basic, juvenile. Christ in the text. Because in fact, all of these things were written about him. The whole book was written about him. Consider this one for a minute. We're going to see him through types. This is important. A type is a picture of something that is to come. Or we're going to see him through shadows. 
Shadows means that light is being shown on something, but we don't have the full picture, so we're seeing glimpses of it in the old. Later on, we're going to see the fullness or what, what's, what the Bible calls marvelous light. So let's look at some types and some shadows. Tell me if you agree. Moses is a type of Jesus, isn't he? Perfect. He's a type of a messianic person that God sends to bring out his people. So then when you read the story, look at how they treat Moses. And see if there isn't some similarities. So when he comes to them, don't they reject him? And does he not go away into the wilderness? And does he not marry a non-Israelite girl before he comes back to them? People are the same in every generation. So Moses is a type. And so when John says, whom the son hath made free is free indeed, it's really a reference to what Moses did in freeing the Israelites. On our level, Jesus does the same thing. He liberates us from that which had us in bondage. Please do this for me. I always think this is important. Because of how scripture is quoted by people sometimes who don't quote it properly, it then becomes a practice down the line. But the practice can be detrimental. Most people quote this scripture incorrectly. They'll say, whom the Son has set free, right? So the, the text says, whom the Son hath made free is free indeed. In other words, you're not released to be captured again. You're being made a free person. So being made is an inner work where inside you're free, your spirit is being made free, your soul is being made free, and ultimately at the resurrection your body is going to be made free. So what the writer wants to teach you is that when God makes you free, the enemy does not have the option to recapture you again. All right, Jesus, a type of Moses. Moses, a type of Jesus. Jesus is in the shadow of the lamb that Moses was told to kill. On the 14th day, Passover, kill this lamb, take its blood, put it on the lintels of your houses, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Isn't that what happens? So the lamb, John will say this, when he sees Jesus coming, what does he say? Behold the lamb of God that taketh away sins of the world. Those lambs that they were killing was a type of a lamb to be killed in the future and secure the liberation of God's people. If you didn't have the blood on your house, what happened? The death angel went in and there was destruction in your house. Number three, this is great. The Bible teaches now that, well, Paul seems to get a revelation that the rock that was with them in the wilderness, Paul says... It wasn't even a type. It wasn't even a shadow. Paul says, and the rock was Christ. And here's a little hidden truth in the text, which you may or may not have seen. The rock that they struck at Rephidim, that he spoke to or was supposed to speak to in another place, that rock was actually following them. Do you see the supernatural aspect of the journey? That meant that the rock that you saw at Rephidim when we march further, that same rock was doing this. So when they got to that other place, Kadesh Barnea, and he was supposed to speak to it, it was the same rock that was following them, and that rock, Paul says, was Christ. 
So what the writer is actually showing you there is that on the journey, there are supernatural elements on the journey. What does the rock supply for them? A provision that's a necessity, right? So then the writer is showing us that on the journey, God then will supply all of our needs in a supernatural way. So Jesus becomes that rock that was with them in the wilderness. And we even write songs, on Christ the solid rock I stand, rock of ages, cleft for me. We see the stability of the one that's with us on the journey. He is a rock for us. Number five, we see him in the manna, in a shadow. Moses gives them this manna that comes from heaven. Jesus comes and says, I'm actually that bread. So Moses was giving you something in a shadow. I'm the bread that came down. And if you eat of me, you shall never die. And then he tells a woman in Samaria, he says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would give him water and he would give you living water. So he was actually in the manna and in the water. I think it's quite simple. God satisfies us if we look to him, listen, as our source. And we have to learn how to do that in the body of Christ. Look to God first, understanding that jobs, vocations, compensation, those are supplementary things. Those are ways in which God supplies, but he ultimately is source. Why is that important? If by any chance you lose a job, what do you not lose? Your source. It changes your trust factor and your worship so that you don't think, I don't have a job, I don't have any, any means. God is my source, and he does it through these means. So Jesus is that manna. Jesus is that living water that flowed. And notice the water comes out of the rock, doesn't it? Beautiful, 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 beautiful. My goodness, we could go on here. He's also seen in the tabernacle, level one, the tabernacle, God with us. He is God with us. But John says the word became flesh. Watch this translation. And tabernacled among us. So in Jesus, watch, the tabernacle finds its fulfillment. He is the one that God wants to live in. That's beautiful. And because the tabernacle, listen to this, was a temporary structure. God lives in Christ for 33 years. But then he wants to move the tabernacle where? He wants to move the tabernacle and make you the tabernacle and live in you. And so Jesus goes, sends someone so that you and I can become the continuity of the tabernacle. Right? God lives in us. And we become the tabernacle of God. Oh, that's good. I think that's a good place to say amen. That you would be the tabernacle of a holy God. And then all of what we taught before about these principles, because God lives in us, he lives in me, I am then circumspect in how I live my life. It doesn't mean that I'm perfect, but I consider my actions. And I correct what needs to be corrected. Agreed? Let's keep going. Aaron is also seen in the types. He's a type of Jesus as the high priest. And so what we had in Aaron was momentary, offering yearly sacrifices, 
weekly sacrifices, daily sacrifices. Here comes Jesus and he becomes the high priest. Let's do this a little further. And what does he offer as sacrifice to God? Thank you. Say it louder. He also becomes the sacrifice. So when we go to Leviticus, you're going to see that not only is he the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. Isn't that something? So he's going to offer himself unto God, a blameless sacrifice. And when he offers himself, all sacrifices do what? Cease. Are you sure? Well, they don't actually cease. They become fulfilled. And becoming fulfilled, they then translate themselves into you and I, who must present our bodies living sacrifices. So that's the power of continuity. So we don't have to bring a a bullock here. That's why I say to people, what you do for God, let's say you say, Pastor, I want to serve in the ministry or I want to give this offering. That's not a sacrifice. You're the sacrifice. Leading to the fact that anything you do is sacrificial. Do you see that? Because you become the living sacrifice. He becomes the high priest, but he's a great high priest. He's such a great high priest that whatever you're feeling, he can feel the same thing. That's where he's a little different from Aaron. Because Aaron might not know exactly what it is that you're feeling. But he can be touched by the feelings our infirmities Aaron went to sleep at night he ever lives to make intercession for us so we see him in the shadow of the great high priest and you can go on I'm going to stop here the journey that you see in Exodus I believe this brothers and sisters tell me what you think I think it's the same journey that any ministry goes on watch not trying to go to heaven trying to accomplish a vision Did you hear what I just said? Do not read that journey into Canaan as this is the journey that it takes to go to heaven. This is the journey that it takes for me to get into what God has promised on earth. And can I show you something? Many die without going into. So here's the question. You can tell me what you think by hands up. How many think that the Israelites that died in the wilderness are gone to hell? Historically, we were teaching that. We were teaching historically that Canaan was heaven. And if you died in the wilderness, you don't go to heaven. I would correct that and say, no. If you die in the wilderness, you don't access God's promises. Heaven is a whole different conversation. Heaven is assumed that the Lamb covers all sins. Heaven is a surety. But the promises of God, they've got to be fought for. You've got a war to enter into those promises that God has relayed to us. All right? So that's, that's the Christological. We could do more. We can go on and on and on. But here's what we want to do. We want to talk about us now, the contemporary. What does this book mean for us? Here's a group of people in Egypt, laboring, rigor, bitter, slaves, God, Moses, deliverance, seas, wilderness, journeys, promise. What does this mean for us today? So let me give you a few things to consider from a contemporary standpoint. Here's the first one. All of humanity, I'm just going to say we, were this. 
So there is this concept that Egypt is not just a geographical place. It's a spiritual reality. Every one of us were enslaved in this. Paul begins to teach us that we were slaves to sin. In fact, we were sold in sin. This was our experience before we came to the Lord. So all of humanity, because of Adam's transgression, found themselves servants to sin. I don't have time to teach this, but I want you to think about this. That would mean that humanity does not have free will. Think about what I'm saying. If you're a slave to something, you can only serve that. So this idea of free will, watch. You're free to choose sin. (laughs) Did you get that? Because free will means in this position, I should be free to choose God. But I'm not. I should be free to choose righteousness, watch, but I cannot. So that which I want to do, even though I try, because I'm a slave to something, someone has to deliver me and restore to me free will. Only believers have free will. So in my theology, only two men had free will, Adam and Jesus. And then those who are in Christ can now choose to do right. Please don't be hard on the sinner. The sinner is choosing to do what sinners do. (laughs) Am I right? Well, if you're a sinner, what should you do? Why then do you judge them? It would be strange if the sinner did righteously. The sinner, when I was a sinner, testify, I sinned. That's, watch brothers and sisters, great mystery. That's what sinners do. Because they're servants in a particular realm. If this is true, think with me for a moment. We're just having a conversation. If life in Egypt is hard and it's bitter and it's rigor, should it be that way in Christ? You see see my point? If it's rigor, if it's labor, if it's hard, it shouldn't be that way in Christ. And if it is, something's wrong with our experience in him, right? Do you know the Bible puts it like this? There's only one person or one type of individual whose path should be hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. The path of the just is as a shining light, shining brighter unto a perfect day. We have to rethink and perhaps here's where teaching comes in. Our position, our status in Christ. And really, I was talking to uh, one of our members, and I said, we've got to learn how to really trust God. Not just words. I trust you, Lord. But to really trust Him and how not to lean to our own understanding, but in all that we're doing, simply knowledge Him. He'll direct our path. He doesn't have a hard life down here for us. He doesn't. He doesn't have, watch this, for the believer, he doesn't have sweat coming down your face. Not unless, not unless you're worshiping him. Because remember all of those things? In the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat bread, you're going to toil. Wasn't that what he said to Adam after he sinned? Why would he continue saying that to us after he has redeemed us? Hmm. 
Here's a scripture that just jumped in my head. We have to learn this. It is not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, saith the Lord. All of us, myself included, we have to learn what that really means. How do we truly let go, not in a foolish way, and allow God to do the work? And how do we do that in a way that it's not a cop-out or an excuse for being lazy? Balance that out. What do I need to do, God, on this journey? And what should I leave you to do? That comes out of a relationship with God. Let's keep going one step further. Second thing we should learn. In this place that we were in bondage, sin was our master. And the, 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 can I say, the king was Satan. So when you look at that Pharaoh person, the type, and you look at the bondage, that's sin and Satan. And we were taskmasters. We served, watch this, don't be offended, we served sin. In fact, we served the law of sin. And we gratified our, didn't we? Shout amen back at me. If you don't, I'm going to say you're self-righteous. We served sin. We fed our flesh. We ate at the table of iniquity. We did. And we delighted in those things. Because these were our masters. Now when you see the believer, Paul would then say that if you're over here, you should no longer be a servant to sin. But now we become servants to righteousness. So this was the, ma- the taskmaster. Here's what I want to tell you. Satan might appear to be kind, but he's a wicked and brutal taskmaster. I'm telling you, after a while, you'll see the nightclub wears you out. The drugs... It's actually, it's pleasure. What you're actually doing is you're pleasure rising yourself unto death. That's all we were doing when we were out there, Lucy. We were actually killing ourselves, self-destructing in the name of, of pleasure. But that, that makes sense because the devil comes to kill, steal, and to destroy. These were our, our, our masters. Number three. In the middle of this, while we were yet sinners, God sent his Messiah. He didn't wait for us to say, we love you, God. While we were yet sinners, God commended his love towards us. So he did all of that. He did the choosing. He sent his own son. He protected his own son. In fact, he even did this. He sent his son to where? He sent his son to Egypt to protect him so that he might fulfill this one. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Jesus then begins to walk the journey of the Israelite coming out of Egypt in a very physical way, typifying what he's ultimately going to do, which is to bring us out of the Egypt that we were in. And so this is for us. God sent his messianic son to free us. We should be teaching or learning ways to tell the world that God has sent Jesus. And that should resonate when people are on drugs, when they're addicted to things, when life is just destroying them. Somehow that message of liberation. Do you know that blacks 
have developed something called liberation theology just based on what they're going through. Guys like James Cone have looked in the Bible and said, there's got to be liberation theology because all humanity is crying for freedom. Even if they don't know freedom from what? They may think it's an oppressive government, a communist system, or what a dictatorial system. It's really the fact that humanity is enslaved. And I think it's a travesty when the body of Christ has, can I say, the medicine and won't figure out ways to actually inject this medicine of, of liberation. Jesus, when he came in the Gospel of Luke, he stood up in the synagogue, remember? And the minister handed him the scroll and he found the place where it was written, Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me. To do what? To open prison doors to set the captives at liberty, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And the Bible says he then closed the scroll, gave it back to the Hazan, and sat down. And what happened? All eyes fastened on him. You mean this guy can deliver us? Let me ask you a question, sisters and brothers. How is it that we have not found a strategy or strategies to convince the world that anything that has them bound, we have an answer in Christ. Because you would, you would testify that you walk by people every day. We work with them. They're, you know, they're wrapped up, tied up. They're just in bondage. And somehow they're not making a beeline. I'm not going to say for Rhema Christian Ministries 49, Carl. They're not making a beeline for Christ. Maybe because we're not showing them that, look at me. I'm free. And then our lives begin to testify of what freedom looks like. He said, I want to be free too. Quick point before we move further. When they left Egypt, Robert, a mixed multitude went with them. That means there were some people in Egypt that said, we want out too. Good or bad, that, that's not going to be all that great when they get in the wilderness. But people were in bondage themselves and said, we want out as well. We're coming out with you as well. God has sent his son into the earth. Am I teaching the gospel now? And that same son, the lamb, has shed his blood. And his blood has ransomed us from what was enslaving us. The price has been paid. The blood has been shed. I think we should do this. I think we should tread lightly when we talk about the blood of Jesus because it is priceless in God's economy. Peter would say that we were not redeemed, Sonia, with silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So on that day, Passover, because you would see that, right? He would have to be killed on what feast day? He could not be killed on the day of atonement. He could not be killed at Pentecost. He had to be killed on Passover. The same time that they were killing lambs in Egypt. And in fact, you know this? When Jesus was dying, do you know what they were also doing in the temple? Killing lambs. Because it was the time for Passover. And God fulfilled that. Crucified. If I may, Joel, you're here? Play softly for a minute. Scholars have said this. I want you to get this picture. 
Listen to this. It is more than just saying Jesus died on the cross. When he went to that cross, beginning with his evening in Gethsemane, the justice of God was poured out upon him. No, I don't think, I hear you, Barbara. I don't think you understand what I'm saying. In other words, you know the Bible talks about the wrath of God and what God would do towards sin? He took that anger, that wrath, that justice, and he poured it out on Jesus. Here's the challenge. He poured it out on one who was without sin. And beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he got into that garden, this is the first time in the Gospels I've ever seen Jesus look like he needed people. Because throughout his entire ministry, they needed him. He never needed them. But when he went into that garden, he said to Peter, to James, and to John, I need you tonight. He said, I need you to stay with me in prayer. I don't think he's making up words. I don't think he's trying to fill in because there's no words there. I really need you praying for me tonight. And the Bible says he takes them a little further. The other nine are back here, about a stone's throw. And he falls down on his knees. He begins to pray. And Mark says he becomes sore amazed and he's frightened out of his mind. And he looks and they have done what? Fallen asleep. And he wakes them. He says, could you not pray with me for how long? For one hour. Because this is called the hour of darkness. Something you and I don't know about. It's the hour when all hell has been given autonomy. Seemingly to get him to that cross. Luke says in his gospel, because Luke is a doctor by profession, Luke said that when he fell, he began to pray his sweat. So his prayer produced sweat. So now you know he's praying. He's not like this. He's not meditating. He's pushing. And Luke said his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Clinically, people have said that there is a condition. There is such a condition where the sweat and the blood get in and all of a sudden it comes out like that. And the Bible said that he was in such a condition that an angel came and strengthened him. That's what's going on when he becomes. I'll take you one step further into the mind of God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just like in the Garden of Eden, notice it takes place in a garden one man sins in the day another man recovers us at night it's it's beautiful what is happening there is the sin of the world is being placed on him Do you remember the book of leviticus leviticus when you committed sin you would take the sacrifice and the priest would lay his hand on the sacrifice lay his hand on you and he would transfer your sin unto the sacrifice then he would kill the sacrifice and do away with your sin you see what the father is doing in that moment the father takes the sin of the world your sin my sin and what does he do he imputes that sin unto jesus paul puts it like this he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
All his life, he had never known what sin felt like. Do you understand that? So he lived a life that he never knew what sin. So what happened is his entire life was lived in fellowship with God. Do you understand that? It's called unbroken fellowship from birth. The moment sin came on his life, guess what broke? The fellowship with God. And then he begins to talk about things like, if it be possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he's in a, I think Luke says that he be in agony, begins to pray. When he becomes sin for the world, he is prime for the cross. Do you know the reason why he could not be captured, could not be killed all his life? He was not ready for the cross. I teach this and I believe it. If they had captured him any other point and nailed him to a cross, guess what would have happened? He would have stayed there. They would have came the next day, he's still there. They would have come the next day, he'd still be there. Day after, because the only thing that can kill him is sin. Because the wages of sin is death. One more thing I'll teach you. It is my belief that blood did not exist in his body all throughout his life. I believe just like Adam was first created, glory was in this man. All his life. His lifeline was the glory of God. So when he went to the mountain of transfiguration and he, can I say this? He disrobed. What happened? He began to shine. And they saw what was giving him life, the glory of God. But the moment the sin principle came on his life, blood comes into his veins. That's beautiful because that's what he needs to shed for the remission of our sins. The moment blood begins to flow, the writer says, here comes the Romans being led by Judas and a companion of priests. And they take him. You know what he says to them? He says, I was with you all the time. You didn't do anything. I was teaching in the synagogues. You didn't come. But now this is the hour of darkness. They take him to a cross. And he does this. Sheds his blood for the sins of the world. Put your writing pads down. We're not done yet. But lift your hands, everyone. I want us to be grateful even if we can't explain it all, even at home. I want you never not to be grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus. Do not take it lightly when you say he paid the price. At home, do not take it lightly. You say, well, Jesus paid it all. Well, think about what you're saying. He suffered. He bled. He died. When he got on the cross, he said, Eloi, Eloi, that word means my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The sun refused to shine. The moon started running away. The earth started convulsing. The son of God was being crucified for you and I. I thank God. I, listen to this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. 
with your hands raised, I want you to be free to tell the world of this great gospel. Tell them. Don't worry if it makes sense. Tell them Jesus died. Christ paid it all. God will do the rest in convincing them of that truth. Don't be ashamed because of Jesus. Hallelujah. Because of Jesus. Hallelujah. For God I live. For God I'll die. Thank you for the blood. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, congregation. My sister, a Roman centurion, sitting at the side of the cross, looked up, and one gospel writer said he beat his chest, and he said, surely this is the Son of God. There's no way you can look at the cross, understand the cross, and not walk away saying, you're not going to walk away saying Buddha. No disrespect to that group. You're not going to walk away saying anything. You're going to say, this man was the son of God. Hallelujah. Now watch. Because of this, would you agree with me? That God lives in us. And he's taking us to promise. You see that? After the lambs were shed and came out through water and we were baptized unto Jesus in the Red Sea of our own experiences. Now, guess what? If the same spirit that raised up Jesus dwell in you, he shall also quicken, bring to life your mortal body. Do you see the, the similarities? The lamb, we're on our way. God is within us now. We've got access to him. And he's leading us into promise. I, I pray, Adrian, I pray that this ministry and other kingdom houses would realize vision before they die. I pray, I pray that ministries will not just say, well, we're just going to worship God until he comes. But whatever he's called us and he's called, caused us to envision, we would realize that. And know that he is a faithful God. He will bring us, watch, into a place that flows with milk and honey. He'll show us how to defeat giants, how to bring down walls, how to step into Jordans, and how to step into places of promise. I also believe that secondary to the cross, another great evangelistic tool for the body of Christ is living in the place of promise not talking about it. Remember I told you last week that young pastor, he said, the greatest struggle I'm having as a young pastor is many saints in our ministry, they're struggling, pastor. They are just struggling. And I'm having a hard time teaching them the word of God when life's realities glaring in front of them. And what ultimately begins to be affected, their trust, their belief in that kind of God. Heaven is not, can I say this and please hear me. Heaven is not the destination of the believer. Canaan is the destination of the believer. Don't preoccupy yourself with heaven. Heaven is guaranteed, whatever that is. And that's why the Bible doesn't even describe heaven. Because it's not a conversation for now. 
the Bible describes earth and what we're supposed to do here until he comes. And what should we do? Occupy till he comes. So then I would teach you a theology. If you occupy, heaven is guaranteed. Because when you're finished, he's going to say, watch, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter, prepared for you. Isn't that right? So heaven is the product in my thinking. It is not just a product. It's the end game of a life well lived here in this life. Take it off the table for now. Don't, I, I want to go to heaven. Don't worry. Guess what? I want to transform earth. And if I transform earth, heaven vow, guaranteed. I want to be, watch this, faithful over that which is least. And he will make me ruler over that which is much. He's with us. Here's another thing to think about. I'll give you a simple outline. So when you're going away to read the book, many outlines, this is one of my own. I enjoy outlines. I also like alliteration. I like when, when things start with the same letter because I think it's easy to remember. So I'm going to break down the book. Remember, there are 40 chapters. Let's break it down into two parts. Tell me if you agree with this. Watch this. Ready? The first part, chapters 1 to 18, will show us that God is for us. In the same way that he was for. So watch this. Don't let your circumstances convince you just because in a moment of life it's bitter and it's hard that God is not for you. 400 years they still had to believe that though they saw no movement from a spiritual standpoint, they still had to believe that God is for them. Maybe sometimes God has to go ahead of you Use some of that time to put some pieces together. So when all the pieces are together, then he shows up. But in the interim, you've got to still believe that God is for us. That's what chapters 1 to 18. And so here's how you can break it down. Watch. We can look at chapters 1 to 2, and we can learn about what it's like to be enslaved, what it's like to be in Egypt. And the more you read this, you say, I don't want to be in the world. I want to be free from demonic tyranny. I want nothing to do with sin. I want nothing to do with sin for my children and their children. I found that in Genesis chapter 2, that's bitter. Watch this. If bitterness is for Egypt, the saints should never be bitter. Agreed? Instead, God should always be making us better. So you can say it like this. Out of our bitterness... He doesn't want you to sit there and wallow in it. He wants you to become better. Chapters 1 and 2. That's for our study. Chapters 3 to 11 teaches us about the Messiah. What he's like. God sent. Anointed. Talks about the miracles. How God drew you out of many waters. You could even say that in my own life, it was a miracle that brought me to salvation. God spoke to me in a prison cell and said, you will not be here any longer. Took you out. You can see the miracles. In other words, in the same way that God fought those gods of Egypt through the plagues, so he's fighting, watch, principalities and powers to release you. Chapters 3 to 11. God is for us and he demonstrates that by fighting for me. Hallelujah. 
God fights for me. Chapters 12 to 18, simple. Lambs lead to liberation. So in these chapters, we can see, oh, lambs need to be slain. Blood needs to be shed. Freedom is bought through sacrifice. Freedom is bought through sacrifice. Can I say one more thing? Freedom is also maintained through sacrifice. It's bought by and it's maintained through sacrifice. That's what these chapters are all about. Inherent in sacrifice, listen, is the law of obedience. Because for them to get out, they had to obey, kill, and come out. And you see how obedience works on the journey. So that's the first part, chapters 1 to 18. God is for us. What do you think I'm going to say for the second, 19 to 40? Can you go ahead of me now? If God is for us in 1 to 18, watch, God is now with us. So the rest of the book shows us that that God that was for us, he is now with us. Exodus, watch, 19 to 40. You can put this in your notes. Emmanuel, God with us. And we start learning, what does it mean that God is with us now? Are you getting something out of this? I'm getting much. I don't know about you, but I like this stuff. I could be here till midnight, but I know you've got things to do. And So watch, because he is with us, first thing, we are people of principles, 19 to 24. So don't get bogged down. Uh, you know, God said, thou shalt not, and all these commandments. No, we are people of principles. And because God is with us, and not even just with us, Sonia, he is in us. Those principles that were on tablets of stone in our economy, those principles are where? Inside of us. Waiting for us to listen to the lawgiver on the inside. So when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will do what? Lead you into all truth. I want everyone, myself, I'm talking to myself tonight. In our ministry, let us strive to be people of principles. It's okay if you make a mistake. I told the person, to, I said, we've all made mistakes and we continue to make mistakes. When we go uh, two weeks from now to Leviticus, we'll show you what we can do. There's sin offerings, there's reparation offerings. Don't worry about those things. Be authentic and a person of principles because that's what we become now. Treat your brother right. An eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth means be just with your brother. Make sure that the punishment fits the, the crime. That's what God is teaching you. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. People of principles. I'll share something with you. Joel, I love it. Don't, don't stop. Pastor called me today. We had, we'd gone somewhere. And he said, no, he said, I couldn't take whatever it was. And he, he said to me, he said, I don't like this city anymore. This is a pastor. He said, I hate this city. And I said, no, pastor, we're going to stay. We're going to do what we need to do. He said, it's a mean city. It's a mean-spirited city. He's talking about fellow Christians. And I began to realize that sometimes in the body, especially among people of like hue and color, we can be mean-spirited. Mean. 
not principled. Doesn't mean things aren't going to happen to us. But let's not be mean-spirited, vindictive, and vengeful. We're people of principles. Watch this. Here's the second part. 25 to 31. God's going to show us pavilions. That's when he builds the tabernacle. It becomes his pavilion. In the secret of his pavilion shall he hide me. He's going to show me now that I am that pavilion, that secret place. And he's also going to teach me about priesthood. You can talk about Jesus, the great priest. And in priesthood, you also find what I call ministry to the body. He's going to teach you about your pastors, your elders, your bishops, your your evangelists, your prophets, and how they mediate to some degree God to you by a common anointing. And we're going to learn what God does in priesthood, how he clothed the priests, the sacrifices. It is here that we discover that those in the priesthood are not permitted out in the field. And the Israelite in the field is personally and directly responsible for the priest in the tabernacle. And he should never then say, why why I got to bring my lamb to this lazy priest? No, because that lazy priest that you're talking about, when you fall into trouble, he's going to take his hand and put it on you and put it on the lamb and cause your sins to be blotted out. You need him, he needs you. You need each other in a symbiotic relationship. And lastly, we're going to close here. Watch. Uh, Sorry, one more after this. I'm going to put chapter 32 by itself. And we'll talk about faith and fears. Because in chapter 32, they were supposed to still believe that though Moses had gone up, he had disappeared for over 40 days. Their faith was shaken. They became fearful. And they reverted. Listen, when people are fearful, they revert back to what makes them comfortable. What they know. And they said to Aaron, we don't know what's happened to Moses. Make us something that resembles what we were used to when we were in Egypt. See the tension? When yesterday's stories are conflicting with tomorrow's stories. Faith and fear. What do you do when the one leading is not there, apparently? You don't know what to do. Be careful. I think what, that's what Paul would not tell you. He would say, don't go back. Press toward the mark. You see that? In moments when your faith is dwindling, keep doing what? Pushing forward. Because what you don't know is what you're doing in those moments is you're actually building faith. Because faith is built best when you don't know what the next step is or what the future holds. That's chapter 32. And then we close the book here. 33 to 40, Moses comes, gives them the instructions. There's a conversation. Rewrites the tablets. They build the tabernacle. They finish the tabernacle. They bring an abundance of offerings. And God shows them grace. And then he shows them his glory. And what he establishes is That glory that you see, that's what I'm going to use to take you into promise. That glory is powerful. It sits over the tabernacle, a cloud by day, protecting them from the heat of the day. A pillar of fire, giving them light by night. When we get to the book of Numbers, I'm going to show you that they do not march until they see that glory rise. Because now watch, 
They're going from glory to glory to glory. And when the glory stops, what should they do? Stop and wait for the glory. Beautiful. And thus the book of Exodus comes to a conclusion. And everyone in the sanctuary online said, I got it. It's in my spirit. And I'm going to live by it in Jesus' name. We're going to do our Q&A. The microphones are open. While you're getting your thoughts and your questions, let me say this to you. We generally do three studies on a Wednesday, and then we would, would have done a prayer. But I told them that I didn't want to do another prayer so close to the summer prayer gathering. I wanted to build more momentum. We want to do another prayer in the fall into the winter. So next Wednesday, which would have been technically our rest, we're going to be here. I'm going to teach again, show you how to put all the pieces together. And then the 31st, so we have five Wednesdays, becomes our rest Wednesday. Got that? So if you want to come, I'm going to be here. If you don't come, I'm going to just talk and you just turn the camera on. But I'm going to be here next Wednesday, 7 to 8.30. And then mark this on your calendar. The 31st is another Wednesday. That's going to be our rest Wednesday. In Jesus' name. Amen. Any questions at all on the journey through Exodus? I'm here. We're here. The microphones are open. Even online. Maybe you want to let me know if there are any questions online. Thank you, Lord. No questions tonight? No questions. Let's stand to our feet, everyone. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Take a moment and ruminate on God's word. Whatever spoke to you tonight, whatever reached you where you are, take a moment and meditate on that. For me, I thank God that I'm free. I thank God. Praise the Lord. I'm free. No longer bound. My soul is resting. Such a blessing. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm free. I lift my hands because I desire to enter into promise. However long it takes God. I want to enter into the promises of God. For all the promises of God, they are yea and they are amen. To the glory of God, I want to enter in. I want to be able to take a generation into promise God. I want to step in to what you promised for us. That possession in the earth. Help us. Help the house of Rhema. Help the body of Christ. Help the global church to step into promise God. Ah, no more wondering God. Turn our feet to your testimonies. Take us away from this mountain. We have gone around this mountain long enough. Set us toward the Jordan God hallelujah is there anyone that wants to go in is there anyone that doesn't mind prospering 
that doesn't mind entering into the things of God, that doesn't mind laying hold to the promises of God. Is there anyone here that doesn't mind crossing a Jordan to move into the promises of God? Spirit of God, take us in. Take us in, God. Take us in. Fight every giant. Bring down every wall. Every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Bring into captivity. In Jesus' name. I say thank you. I say thank you. I say thank you. I know you feel it. Hallelujah. Let's say thank you everyone. Then we're going home. Just tell the Lord thank you. Go ahead Joel. Just say thank you Lord. Thank you Jesus. Thank you Jesus. It's not all right. It's not all what I want it to be. It's not perfect in my life. But I say thank you God. Everything is not everything. But I thank you Jesus. I'm wishing for more, but I thank you, God. I'm believing you for great things, better days, but I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, God. And unanswered prayers in my life, but I say thank you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, God, anoint this church. Anoint each person that comprises this body. Hallelujah. 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 You're going to make it. We're going to make it in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Lift your hands, everyone. Here we go. Say, I believe. Say, I'm convinced. God has called me. He is empowering me. I'm changing. And I'm going to change every life. In Jesus' name.